Hi, I'm Nolan Cleary, award-winning journalist and host of the hit podcast, Politics Weekly. I'm here to tell you about my new website, nolancleary.com. It's full of political analyses, a link to my podcast, and predictions for upcoming elections. If you want to know everything there is to know about upcoming elections, go to nolancleary.com right now. Hey everyone, welcome to Politics Weekly. Politics Weekly is a weekly nonpartisan podcast featuring some of the biggest names in politics and portraying some of the biggest political stories of the week through both left and right leaning lenses. Hosted by award winning journalist Nolan Cleary, the former editor in chief of the Hudsonian newspaper, Politics Weekly has been listened to by over 15,000 people worldwide. The views expressed by guests on our show are not necessarily the views expressed by the host, Nolan Cleary. All right, welcome back. Uh, Today we have a very special guest with us. I am very excited to interview him. Uh, Mr. Ted Strickland, he was the governor of Ohio from 2007 to 2011. Uh, He's the most recent Democrat to serve as governor of the state, and he joins me today. Thank you, Governor, for joining me. Happy to be with you. So the first question uh, I want to ask you is uh, what got you, uh, what inspired you to run for politics in the first place? Well, it's interesting that you ask me that because I've been working on at least the beginnings of a memoir, um, and I've been thinking about that myself. Um, You know, I grew up in a a very labor-oriented family. We were all Democrats. Um, But I also grew up in a uh, theologically conservative um, environment, Uh, went to theological seminary, three years after college um, before I pursued my graduate work at the University of Kentucky. So I was, uh, you know, I was a person who had very liberal uh, ideas about social policy, but I had some conservative ideas when it came to religious beliefs. Um, And at some point in time, I had to try to reconcile those those, uh, differences. And uh, I became increasingly uh, progressive in my thinking. And um, uh, I, uh, you you may not know this about me, but as a graduate student uh, working on my PhD, um, I was consumed by what was happening in our society. Um, The civil rights movement obviously had an effect upon me. The Vietnam War had an effect upon me and Watergate had a massive influence in my life. I could not put watching those hearings on TV and so on. And um, what appears to be a spur of the moment decision, but it really wasn't, I guess it was kind of percolating inside me over maybe months and years. I decided I was going to run for Congress and I knew no political person I had, uh, you know, no experience in terms of 
campaigns and so on. I didn't even know the district boundaries. <laughs> I knew nothing except I decided I was going to run for Congress. And it was a large uh, 14 county district. And I uh, decided to run against a very powerful incumbent. Um, in fact, he was the chairman of the uh, House uh, uh, Transportation Committee, very powerful guy, been in office a long time. And so I, I ran against him and I spent $14,000 on my first race and I lost, but I ended up with 36% of the vote. And I thought, it's not bad, you know, for a beginner. So I went back to graduate school to continue work on my PhD, but I decided to run um, in 78. The first time I ran was 76. And uh, so I ran in 78 and I lost the second time. Uh, about the same margin. Uh, and then I I thought, well, I'll probably not do this again. But uh, a few months later, I, I was leaving my apartment in Lexington, Kentucky to go defend my dissertation. And I get a call from the Dayton Daily News. And they said, um, Mr. Strickland, uh, Congressman Harsha just announced that he's retiring. So I decided to run a third time for an open seat. And I, I ran a good campaign and um, and I, I won half the counties. And uh, if it hadn't been for the Reagan landslide, I, I think I may have won that race. And lo and behold, they did redistricting, right? After the 2020 census. And I, you know, I said, why not try this again? Fourth time, right? And, um, and I ran against the fellow who had defeated me in, um, in 1980. And lo and behold, I won with about 51% about of the vote. And uh, lo and behold, when I ran for reelection, I lost. So what did I do? I decided to run again. And, uh, you know, I said to people, you can call me a lot of things, but you can't call me a quitter. <laughs> um, so um, so I, I ended up defeating the person who defeated me. And then I ended up spending 12 years in the House of Representatives. And um, I, I, I got a call one day from Senator Harry Reid. And I didn't know Senator Reid, but of course he was the Democratic leader in the Senate. And he said, Congressman, would you be willing to come over to my office? I'd like to talk with you. So I said, sure. So I go over to Harry's office. And uh, when I get over there, there's Senator Schumer and Senator Stabenow and Senator Durbin. And they said, uh, you know, we're looking at your background, your resume here. We think you'd really be a good candidate for the Senate. And my chief of staff was a fellow who had worked in the Senate for Senator John Glenn. Anyway, uh, my chief of staff who had worked on the Senate side said, well, Ted, if, if you're willing to leave the House after you've worked half your life trying to get there, um, why don't you consider running for governor? Because he said, you know, a governor can do more things than a single senator. And um, so I called Senator Reed. I reached him in Searchlight, a little town there where he was from. and. Uh, I said, uh, Senator Reed, I've decided that I'm not going to run for the Senate. Uh, I'm going to run for governor. 
And Senator Reed's response to me was just, just perfect, I thought. He said, you know, I wish you were running for the Senate, but I'm glad you're not staying in the House. He said, <laughs> country is, is in trouble and we need people who are willing to take a risk and you're willing to take a risk and run for governor. So, uh, so I did, I ran for governor and lo and behold, I won. Life of Ted Strickland. <laughs> now, uh, when you first ran in 2006, uh, you ended up winning by a massive landslide, which is huge for a state like Ohio, which is you know typically a 50-50 swing state. What was your reaction when uh, it was election night and you saw the uh, results came, come in and you saw they were overwhelmingly in your favor? Well, I was happy, obviously, but um, but I think there were some reasons for that. Uh, uh, that win the the prior administration, the Taft administration. By the way, Bob Taft, you know, has a, a wonderful legacy. His his family was senator and all that, and he, and he's just a just he, he's a, he's just a good man. But uh, th there were some scandals that happened in his administration, and so I think the people of Ohio reacted to that. Um, I think I was a good candidate because. Um, uh, I, I came from Appalachia, Ohio, Southern Ohio. And, and, and my first congressional district uh, encompassed 14 counties that went from the suburbs of Cincinnati over to the middle of the Southern part of Ohio. And then they changed my district and it took me from my home county all the way up 333 miles, all the way up to um, Youngstown, Ohio. So I had basically represented two congressional districts and um, in a part of the state where Democrats usually don't do well, but my constituents you know, apparently liked me. They kept me there for 12 years. And so they gave me a leg up as a Democrat, um, being able to do well in a part of the state that normally voted for Republicans. Uh, and then the scandal. And then I think I was a good candidate and I think my opponent was not a terribly good candidate. Can I give you an example? Sure, go right ahead, go right ahead. Okay. Well, when I was in the House, um, a resolution came to the floor of the House to condemn a psychological study um, that was uh, uh, presented in one of the most prestigious psychological journals, the Monitor. And um, it, it was, it was, a, it was a, a resolution about child sex abuse, right? And, you know, the conservatives, Dr. Laura, the so-called, I don't know how she describes herself. She talks on the radio and gives people advice. She apparently got upset about the study, thought that it, uh, it condoned the abuse of children sexually. And Tom DeLay, who was then a Republican in the House from Texas, he brought it, this resolution to the floor of the House and and it, it had things in there that I agreed with, like the abuse of children is reprehensible and all that. But there were things in there that I didn't agree with as a psychologist, <laughs> and I read the study. And, it, and there was a section that said, whereas, uh, and I'm not quoting this verbatim, but it, it says something to the effect that whereas research has shown that children who've been sexually abused are unable to uh, develop a healthy, affectionate adult relationships. And I just didn't believe that. 
so I went to the floor of the House and I and I voted present because parts of the resolution I agreed with, parts of the resolution I disagreed with. So I voted present to let my constituents know I wasn't playing hooky. Right? Mm -hmm. I was on. And the Republicans immediately started accusing me of being soft on on uh, on pedophilia. And um, in the governor's race, um, my opponent brought that that subject up, right? You know that vote, and uh, and, and he said, uh, "Mr. Strickland, the uh, North American uh, adult boy." I don't know what, what the NAM was, the, <laughs> how it's referred to. Um, um, cheered when you cast that vote. They thought that, you know, gave them some permission to engage in this kind of behavior. And I, I, I said, uh, I said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Apparently, you know a lot more about the North America Man Boy Love Association than I do, and the crowd applauded, and it was it was the death knell, I think, for his campaign, because it it just showed, I don't know, it showed something about him, and I think it showed something about me, that that was convincing to the people that uh, I was the right person for the job, and he wasn't. So, um, a, a lot of things went into that that when you know um now um what would you say is the most challenging aspect about governing oh uh, <laughs> uh working with the legislature right um during during my first two years uh, as governor both the ohio house and the ohio senate were controlled by republicans and we worked together really well. Uh, every week, I had the Speaker of the House and the Leader of the Senate come to my office. I put a, round, a big round table in my office. And I, I did that because when you use a round table, there's no head position, right? Everybody's equal. Every week, we met and we debated and we argued and um, and we and we reached compromise and we got things done. For example, as I said, we passed an energy bill in Ohio, a very strong renewable standard. Now that was very significant for Ohio because we're a big manufacturing state and we use a lot of energy, but we were able to come to a compromise and we got that renewable standard in place. We passed significant education reform uh, and the Education Commission of the States, made up of all the states, uh, said that Ohio's education reform was the boldest, uh, most creative in the entire country. So we, you know, we, we got things. Uh, and then the recession hit, the Great Recession, uh, and uh, that made it really tough. And my final two years, um, the, the Democrats had captured control of the House the Senate remained Republican, and it was just, it was just gridlock. Uh, we, we just, we just couldn't get the kind of working relationship that we had during my first two years. And Ohio, like the rest of the country, 
you know, was greatly damaged by that recession and people were hurting and, um, and um, uh, coming to terms with falling revenue. You asked what was most, most difficult. I said working with the legislature, but I guess dealing with the budget may have been the most, because we had falling revenue and increased need. And that's what happens in a recession. Um, and, and so you have to find ways to try to keep the budget in balance, which is required by our Ohio constitution. Um, and uh, so you have to find where you're gonna try to save money while continuing to fund the most essential things that are important to people. And um, so I ended up, you know, uh, with your votes that I needed uh, at the end of that election. Um, what would you say was the most difficult challenge when it came to campaigning? Well, in Ohio, uh, and my friend Tim Ryan, who's running for the Senate, I think is facing that this year. Um, Ohio's a big state. Uh, we're the seventh largest state. We've got, you know, we don't have a New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, but we have Cincinnati and Columbus and Dayton and Cleveland and Toledo and Youngstown and Akron. You have a lot of metropolitan areas. They've all got their media markets and they're all very expensive. And so running statewide in Ohio takes a lot of money. You know, the, the National Senate campaign can spend a few million dollars and maybe win a Senate seat in Montana, but they're gonna to have to spend many millions of dollars to win a Senate seat in Ohio. So it's, it's, it's just a big state, it's, 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 it's diverse. It's one of the most diverse states in America. So you, you know, you've got to appeal to the farming community, you've got to appeal to the Appalachian community, you've got to appeal to the big cities, you've got to appeal to you know, rural areas, small towns. Uh, so many ethnic groups are represented in Ohio. So many languages are represented in Ohio. So it's just a very, complex state to, to uh, you know, to run statewide in. Mm. Um, now, um, I know in 2008 and 2012, you spoke at the uh, presidential conventions. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that when you talked to the, the Democratic National Conventions those years? Well, that's a lot of fun, obviously, because, you know, you're there with people who agree with you on most everything. And, um, and, and, and it was, a, it was a thrill, but but let me tell you, uh, that first convention, um, I, uh, I walked out on the platform and of course they have your, you know, your speech on the teleprompter there, all this kind of stuff. And, and when I walked out, I looked at the screen, it's, it said, I'm a farmer from <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> let's see, Montana or something that put their own speech out there. Um, which which uh, kind of put a, a, a lightning bolt feeling going through my body, like what do I do? But anyway, they quickly quickly got the right speech up, and it was it was a lot of fun addressing. I, I especially enjoyed the second uh, the second convention speech. Um, uh, I got a good response from that, as a matter of fact, and um, and um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I know in 2008, uh, there were rumors that you, uh, there were rumors going around that you were considered for the vice presidency and that you were on Obama's shortlist. 
Uh, did Barack Obama ever approach you about or ever have talks with you about potentially being his running mate? No, and um, I, I don't know that I was ever considered uh, by Obama. I, uh, I think that rumor first surfaced when Hillary was thinking of choosing a running mate. And I, uh, I love Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, known her, gosh, I've known her since, you know, the first run, um, uh, Bill Clinton's first run for president. I spent a lot of time with her. I've campaigned with her. I desperately wanted her to be president. Um, and uh, there was some speculation that uh, I might have been considered um, when she was running, but nothing ever happened that was of a formal nature, just just mostly casual talk. Um, what would you say um, was, what would you say would you consider your biggest accomplishment as governor or one of your biggest accomplishments as governor? Well, you know, um, I had a lot of accomplishments, but, but the sad thing about politics is that um, your successor always has the ability, if he chooses to, to, um, to, to undo much of what you've accomplished. And, um, and John Kasich did that. Um, he, um, for example, I, I worked to get $500 million for rail transport transportation in Ohio. Ohio has very inadequate public transportation. And certainly when it comes to connecting our major metropolitan areas, and, and I, had, I had worked and worked and worked uh, with Ray LaHood, who was a Republican that was the Secretary of Transportation at the time. And, and Ohio was awarded um, uh, between four and $500 million to establish passenger rail service that would connect Cleveland, Columbus, go over to Dayton and down to Cincinnati. And when John Kasich became governor in his first week, he gave it back. Um, and even today now, under Governor DeWine and, and, and Republicans, they're discussing how to establish passenger rail service throughout Ohio. But it's like it's 12 years late, you know? And that money's gone, it's not here anymore. And so, that's just an example of how um, my renewable en energy standards were terribly weakened. They still exist, but, but, but not at the same strength they were. Our education reform was just gutted when Casey came in. And let me tell you, I don't have, I don't have any respect for John Kasich as governor. He had eight years. And I say to my Republican friends, what is John Kasich's legacy? He had eight years. I had four years and I had a recession to deal with and we accomplished a lot in terms of policy. John Kasich had eight years and I don't know if what he can point to as his legacy. Now, so I'm pretty tough on John Kasich. I'm not nearly as tough on Republican Mike DeWine. You know, I disagree with Mike DeWine, Governor DeWine. I disagree with him on choice. I disagree with him on 
a lot of things. But I, but, but I don't disrespect him as a person because in spite of our differences, uh, I think, you know, I think he's a, a very decent, honorable human being. Um, now, um, I know after you uh, left uh, the governorship, you became the president of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, do you wanna, I, I did. Do you want to tell people a little bit about um, what you did there and what that was about? Well, as you know, there's a, there's a, a C3s and C4s, um, and the Center for American Progress has it, it, it has a C3 and a C4. Um, uh, the, the the head of the C4 was Neera Tanton, who is now working for the administration, the Biden administration. Very very competent, capable person, and 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 I was in charge of the C4, which was able to be more more uh, directly political in its activities. But we tried to, you know, push progressive uh, policies um, in terms of healthcare, in terms of housing, in terms of transportation, in terms of uh, the environment, certainly. Um, and and uh, I left there to come back to Ohio and run for the Senate uh, against um, Governor or Senator Portman. Uh, lost that hugely. Um, lost, lost that race. Um, but um, but I really have a lot of respect for the Center for American Progress. I think it is one of the more credible progressive um, organizations that exist. And, um, I, you know, I still follow them and pay attention to what they're doing and, and uh, certainly wish them great success. Now, how have uh, Ohio politics changed in your mind uh, since you left office as governor? Uh, uh, dramatically, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, well, the country has changed in, in, in dramatic ways. The country's become more divisive, more polarized, um, less willing to seek common, common ground, common purpose, to advance the common good. Um, I, you know, I blame Donald Trump for some of that, but not all of it. Um, uh, I, I'm going to speak in a very partisan way here because I think over the last, well, the, 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 this is how I look at the Republican Party. Um, I think Ronald Reagan made greed fashionable, and that led to significant changes in our tax policy, which has contributed to this massive uh, discrepancy between the average person and and the m most wealthy few in our country. I think that started under Ronald Reagan. Um, I think the divisiveness and the hostility that has invaded our, our, our public life started with Newt Gingrich as the Speaker of the House. And so, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was a freshman in, in um, uh, the Congress. I considered my best friend to be a Republican. And uh, I don't think those kind of uh, friendships and relationships are are maybe not even possible today because of the incredible 
hostility that started, and I, you know, I say in my judgment, it started under the speakership of uh, Newt Gingrich, where it was uh, politics became a blood sport, and uh, it, it was it was impossible to find common ground because um, it, it was just it was just so partisan, so political. Mm. Now, what um, advice would you give to someone who uh, is starting up in politics? You know, thank you for asking me that question because I get that question a lot from young people. And, and, and the first thing I say is I would not suggest that you try to enter politics as I did, <laughs> losing in 76, losing in 78, losing in 80, winning and then losing and then winning again um, uh, but I say if, if, if you're interested in politics and you're a young person the, 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 the thing I think you should do is to find some political person candidate, office holder uh, that you have respect for and whose values you agree with and deeply engage yourself in that person's campaign because there's there's no way to learn politics like working in a political campaign. Um, it, you, you can read about it in books, um, but unless you get in there and, and do the grubby work, uh, make the phone calls, you know, do all of that, those things that you've got to do in a campaign, you can't really understand what a campaign is like. And some people just don't like that kind of experience. Uh, others, others feed upon it and love it and get excited about it and so on and so forth. So um, get involved in a campaign um, and figure out whether or not it's the kind of experience that brings meaning to your life. Um, and, and if you dread it, if you don't look forward to getting up every day and, and going to work in the battlefield, then, then for God's sake, don't become a candidate. <laughs> Well, I think those are uh, all the questions uh, I have. Uh, I want to thank uh, Governor Strickland again for coming on the show. Um, before you go, do you want to tell people a little bit about that memoir you're writing? Well, it's very emotional, as a matter of fact. I mean, I'm 81 years old now, um, and uh, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've been a United Methodist minister. I've been a college professor. I've I've uh, worked in childcare. Uh, I've been a congressman. I've been a governor, um, uh, and you know, I've been a family member and a husband and 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 a friend to, to a lot of people. And so I, I've been sort of going back over my my life and trying to recall and to write what I remember. And it can be very emotional. It can be really emotional. Um, um, but it's a good experience. Um, it's it's a uh, it's it's you know it's good to it's good to remember people and as people have been so good to me um, across my political life as well as my personal life, and uh, I'm trying to remember those people and those experiences and those relationships, and um, I think I've settled on a on a title. Um, a, a purposeful life, uh, and the subtitle would be 
from uh, from living in a chicken shack to living in the governor's mansion. Mm -hmm. Because when I was a kid, I, I came from a family that was struggled a lot economically. And when I was about five years old, our home burned. And um, there, were, there were still nine of us kids. And we had nothing except we had a, a chicken shack that was built on the side of the hill. And we had a, what we called a smokehouse that was at the bottom of the hill. And so my older brothers and my father went to work and they used uh, cardboard um, for a wallboard and, that, and they, uh, uh, they put a wood floor in that chicken shack and they, we got beds from the Salvation Army. And so for a few months, uh, our family lived in a chicken shack and we ate in the smokehouse. And, uh, you know, I, I went to a one room school until I was in the fourth grade. Um, and um, um, out of nine kids, only two of us finished high school. And I was able to go to college and get two master's degrees and a PhD degree and eventually be a congressman and a governor. And um, there are a lot of reasons why that was possible. Um, but it was because of the people who loved me and cared for me and helped me. And, and I'm trying to write about those people and those experiences. Well, uh... The creators of Politics Weekly have a new series now out. The series that has amassed nearly 20,000 listeners is now getting a spin-off on online radio. Politics Weekly Live is a follow-up to Politics Weekly, bringing you more content, live commentary, and the ability to respond to stories live. Politics Weekly Live is available to listen to every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on WPSR, the official radio station of Purchase College, and will be posted wherever you listen to podcasts following recording. Ooh.